So God is calling our church to a life of deeper prayer. He's calling us to a deeper trust in His presence and His kingdom's reign. He's calling us to a deeper attentiveness to Himself and uh, to one another and to the world around us. And so we respond then in order to, to answer this call by enrolling, so to speak, into the, the school of prayer. We're immersing ourselves in the Psalms and we're wading through them and allowing them to shape our thinking when it comes to pray, prayer. Because the Psalms have been the prayer book of God's people for thousands of years. They've shaped the way people have prayed. Aubrey mentioned last week how the Psalms are a collection of 150 prayers, songs, poems, and they serve this unique role of being, of giving voice to humanity's response back to God's, uh, response to God's words. But it's also God's word to us. It has this kind of double play. And uh, we've seen thus far in here, Psalms 1 and 2, call us to delight in God's word uh, and to depend on God's Son, His anointed King. In fact, these are the twin pillars that uh, stand as, as the entrance, the gateway into the blessed life. They stand as the entrance into the life of prayer. And we'll see is that that worldview, this extreme delight in God's word and extreme dependence upon God, seeking refuge in Him, is at the core of every prayer that we pray. That's the worldview that lies underneath things. So Aubrey called us and challenged us last week to learn the skill of praying praise. And he said that we need to do this because God deserves it. He's the creator of the universe. He's done all of this. He is working out acts of redemption that will renew all things. And so he is worthy of praise. But also our lives need it. It is important because it is the goal of the human experience, right? It's the goal of the end of human existence. This is what we are made to do, to praise. But praise also shapes us in this current life. You know, if, As we participate in praise, our hearts and our lives are being shaped by that. And so we need it. But it also the world needs it because our praise, is our, our conf- the praise that we offer to God is the, con- is the confession of our faith. It is our witness to the world. And so it's important that we learn the skill of praise. Um, but today we're looking at Psalm 13, which is a prayer for help. Learning to pray for help is a skill that we all need to grow in. For this life is this tumultuous mixture of the good, the messy, and sometimes the painful. Uh, Psalm praying takes the stuff of real life and it runs to God. It takes the joyful, the painful, the exciting, the mundane, and it runs with all of that stuff. It runs to God as the one who can help us, as the one who can help give perspective and make sense to all these things. So that's what psalm praying does. It's important for us to learn to pray through the psalms. Psalm 13, though, is a prayer for help. It's considered as, uh, it's the shortest of the prayer for help, prayers for help. It's only six verses, but it's considered to be kind of the, st- uh, the prototype or the, the paradigm for this type of psalm, this type of praying. And packed in these six verses are five elements that characterize these prayer- prayers for helps over the course of Scripture. Right? Um, and behind these elements, these five elements, like I said a second ago, lies this deep commitment to delighting in God's Word, People who are praying know the story of God. They know his story. And there's a dependence on him. They trust that he's the one who could bring deliverance. So here's how we're going to go about exploring Psalm 13. We're going to walk through it, kind of outline for him, walk our way through it. And as we're walking along, we're going to tease up these five elements and uh, talk about them more directly. And then at the end, we're going to talk about a little bit practical 
ways of approaching these types of psalms and these types of prayers. So if you haven't turned in your Bible, please turn to Psalm 13. That's where we're going to be. Psalm 13 breaks, has three natural breaks in it. Every two verses, the psalm has this bigger gap. If you look at your English text, most of them will have a larger gap between verses 2 and 3 and uh, verses 4 and 5 than between the other verses. There's this larger space there. And all that is is this editorial clue that in our English translations that say, hey, the, the translators are grouping these verses together, that this is a block of Scripture that has something coherent about it. And so that's a good clue for us as we're going to be reading through it and praying. Now, for our particular psalm, it helps us to outline it. Okay? Each of these blocks is going to main, be a main theme that we're going to hit on. But throughout the psalms, just because there's a, a bigger space there, doesn't mean it's a, a new kind of outline point. All right? So if you're thinking you're going to go outline the rest of the psalms this evening, uh, <laughs> that's not the way to go about it. But the grouping is important, and I'll, we'll talk more about that later. Um, so there, there are three main points in our, our psalm. The first one is complaint. The second one is petition. And the third one is promise. So we'll begin with complaint, since that's where it starts. It's labeled complaint because that's what David is doing. He's crying out against the Lord. He cries out, how long? How long? How long? Four times he says, how long? He's crying out against the Lord. Where, where are you at? He cu- accuses God of hiding his face. Now, these psalms have also been called lament psalms, or the lament of the individual. And that's what he's doing here. David is lamenting, but he's doing something more than lamenting. He's accusing God of not being present. He's accusing God of being hidden from this, his situation. He's accusing God of dragging his feet, of being slow to respond, of hi- intentionally hiding himself. And so David, the psalmist, feels forgotten. He feels as if God is actively hiding his face from him. And so David is overcome with sorrow. And what's worse, his enemy has been exalted over him, he says. Now that's significant, because in the psalms, the only one who's supposed to be exalted is God. God is the one who's supposed to be exalted. But here, the place that you're supposed to look for help is occupied by the enemy. God has been displaced. Now this is a lament, and it's an accusation, it's a complaint. Most of us aren't used to starting our prayers this way, right? We've we got to butter God up. Dear Lord. You know? <laughs> but He doesn't do that. So the first element that we need to take note of in these prayers for help is that of honest and direct address to God. So, honest Direct address to God. Notice that this prayer is not some interior reflection. It's not this meditative musing. He's speaking directly to God. He's accusing God of not following through with what something God is supposed to do. He's using God's given name. Um, God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, as I am who I am. In Exodus chapter 3, Aubrey mentioned this, and we, we know that that's the word that David is using here because of the small caps, the way the Lord is spelt with small caps. Now, wrapped up in the way that God has revealed himself is the notion of his self-existence, and uh, his uh, immense power. There's all those kind of ideas and notions that are, are wrapped up in there. But God has also revealed himself. Think about Exodus chapter 3 when he's revealing himself to Moses. He's coming and saying, Moses, I've heard the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry, and I'm responding to it. And God talks about justice. 
God reveals himself as the one who corrects wrongs. I love the way our daughter's little storybook Bible puts it. It says that God is the one who will make all the sad things come untrue. That's who God is. That's what God does. That's how he's revealed himself in Scripture. And so we need to pray to this God. But the things, because these are the things that he deals with. This is his turf, right? And so David comes to him and says, God, things aren't all right. You're supposed to be doing something about this. And I don't feel like you are. He cries out. God is the God of justice. He knows that. But injustice is swallowing him up. So how can God do this? And so David cries out four times. How long? How long? How long? How long? And with each question, there's intensity and urgency is growing and welling up inside. Now, an important thing to point out at this point is that even in doubt and questioning that we see in David's voice here, he's looking to God. He's still looking to God. And what this tells us is that there is room in faith for doubt. There's room in faith for doubt. We're not this unfeeling people. We're not stoic robots, right? We... Question. We struggle with thoughts. We struggle with faith. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with fear. And that's okay. It's one of the things that the psalm is telling us. It's okay. Prayer is our response to God. Even when that prayer is tinted with doubt or fear, it arises because God has first taken the initiative to call forth faith in, 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 in us. Our prayer is simply a response to God, already doing something in us. So there is room in faith for doubt, for questions and for fear. The psalmist brings an honest complaint to God, trusting that somehow God is going to make, that God will, or at least can, respond to this thing. So this complaint. And the first element is honest, direct address to God. The next theme that we get to is marked by petition, uh, making requests known to God. Notice verses 3 and 4. He says, Consider, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my eyes, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So a common second element to these prayers for help is the description of your trouble. He describes his foes are coming after him. But as you look at these different kinds of prayers throughout the Psalms, the Psalms do an amazing thing here. They don't explicitly define the trouble. They don't. The descriptions of trouble use language that belongs to three kinds, often belong to three kinds of experience, to sickness, to uh, accusation, or to armed conflict. Somebody's really pursuing his life. And in many cases, these are just general, uh, a general vocabulary of need. They're a rhetoric, rhetoric of affliction, a traditional convention used to depict the way or the one who prays as the sufferer. So it's less about trying to, get, to explain a specific historical affliction, and it's more about describing and allowing the person who's praying to express their neediness and their helplessness in their prayer. So what, what's happening is, as the Psalms veil the actual, the historical kind of experience, the trouble that the psalmists were going through, uh, it doesn't allow us to get behind that and find that and nail down that historical thing and get behind that and work all the details out of it. But in doing so, what it does, it is opens up the Psalms to allow us to enter into the, those words. 
and take on those words. It's because we can't get behind these words that these words can become ours. And that we can be the ones who stand as the sufferer. We can be the one who is in affliction and we can voice these prayers back to God. Now, maybe you don't feel like you're facing the possibility of death right now. Or maybe you don't feel like you have physical enemies seeking your demise. Perhaps you felt the pressure of an unjust system bearing down on you. Perhaps you felt the sting of co-workers scheming against you. Perhaps you felt like your soul was shriveling up on the inside because of struggling with a sense of a sin or sins, that power over your life. You feel it crushing you. What you need to do is bring that injustice. Bring the injustice of that enemy, be it an actual person, be it a system, be it uh, your own sin nature. Bring that to God and allow God, plead for God to do something, to act, to intervene. We acknowledge our neediness, we, our helplessness. We acknowledge those things. We cry out to God as the one who can do something. So we want to, honest, talk about your description, describe your trouble. But the third element in this is that a petition, us making a case before God. And God has really taken our church on a journey. He's already started training us in this. Um, what we see as we look at David's prayer, he combines his description and his tro- of his troubles and his petitions together. But his petition, they emerge from his faith and from his complaint. Notice that there in verse 3... <laughs> He doesn't feel like the Lord is present. God is hiding his face from him. And David doesn't look elsewhere, right? He doesn't look elsewhere for help. He doesn't go to some other source. He pursues God. He says, Lord, consider me. Answer me. He says, look at me. Turn your face back to me. Listen to me, O Lord, my God. Within his prayer, his faith is on display. His faith faith is being enacted. And he argues the case. Lord, I need you to do this, lest I die, lest my enemies prevail over me, lest my enemies rejoice over me at my calamity. Now, what's interesting is David knows that God does not delight in the calamities that have befallen him. He knows that. He knows that God doesn't delight in injustice. Why? Because he delights in God's word. He delights in God's word. He knows the story. He also knows that God is the one who can be his refuge. That God is the one who can actually change things. And so he comes to God and says, God, this is the case. Sometimes, some of these psalms, you'll see them saying, for your name's sake, Lord. You know? They ask God for his name's sake. That's part of the case that they bring before the Lord. To not let his name be put to shame. So we need to learn to bring our neediness but to declare our hope as we bring our cases and argue our cases before God. Uh, as I said, God has allowed our church to already kind of begin this journey. You know, as we've been praying about this new building, uh, we've done this. We've brought our concerns, our needs to Him. Uh, when we started feeling like the Parts Inc. building was the option that God was opening up for us, we began praying. Uh, Lord, this requires a lot of money that we don't have. Lord, this requires a lot of other things that we don't have. We need you to help us to do this. And we started making the case. We said, you've established this church. You're planting this church in this city and in this valley. Don't let us be put to shame. And we've been asking those things. We've been bringing our case before the Lord. Think about the Gentile lady from our New Testament reading, right? Or our Gospel reading. She wasn't supposed to be there. 
The disciples are like, Lord, you need to get rid of her. Jesus says something that seems a bit insensitive to us, you know, right? (laughs) But the lady doesn't just go home. She brings her case before the Lord. She brings her case before the Lord. And Jesus not only responds to her, he applauds her faith. And so we need to learn to do this. We need to pray for help. We need to describe our troubles. We need to describe the enemies. And we need to lay our case out before the Lord, praying in faith, hoping in Him. Now, this does not, however, equal or mean that things are going to work out always the way that you want them to. It worked out for the lady who was praying, right, in Matthew 15. It worked out for Jonah. But when you think about Exodus chapter 3 and the Hebrew people being delivered from uh, enslavement at the hands of the Egyptians, I mean, they were enslaved for some 400 years, or, you know, almost 400 years, right? Surely somebody was crying out for deliverance during that time. Our psalmist, how long? How long, O oh Lord? He asked, I mean, he's been praying this for some time. It's not, it doesn't always happen as quickly as we would like. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that God would save the world in some other way than through the cross. And God does not grant his request. But they all prayed. And they all experienced something great and significant in that prayer. Which is kind of where we're going. (laughs) The next part of the theme, or the next part of our psalm, is about promise. But it's not a promise from God to us, or to David. It's a promise from David to God. And it seems kind of odd. There's this huge shift, right? How long, O Lord? How long? I need you to do this because my enemies are trying to rejoice over me. They're trying to, you know, delight at my calamity and my demise. And then it shifts to this, I've trusted you. I'm going to rejoice at your salvation. I will sing to you. It shifts from this, like, crying out, this lament and this crying out with this grieving petition to confidence in who God is and a commitment to praise Him. It's wild. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There's been a change that has occurred. Uh, some people want to say that five and six verses five and six were added on afterwards. That you know the psalmist prayed this and then God delivered him. And once he got what he wanted, then they tacked this on at the end of it. But there's really nothing in the context of the Psalms or Scripture or outside evidence that would suggest that's the way we should interpret this. And that's very significant. What it says is that complaint and praise, they're intertwined. Like they go together, which is very reflective of life. Life is a messy conglomeration of the good and the bad. And that's what we have here. We have this shift, though. So how do we explain it? I think there's a shift in the psalmist, in David himself. Now, last week, Aubrey talked about praying uh, as not some, or maybe it was the first week, I can't remember, but uh, talked about praying as being something we pray because we believe God will respond, because God will act, because God will do something differently than if we don't. And that it's not merely about some kind of inner working inside of us. Now that does happen. We are changed inside as we pray. But that's not the only reason we pray. And I think that's what happens here to David, though. He, as he acts out his faith in prayer... His faith is strengthened. 
right? He doesn't believe that the Lord is pleased with the injustice that's happening in his life. And so he brings it to God and he runs to God as the one who he should depend on, who can give him refuge, who can deliver him. And as he acts out that faith in prayer, his faith is strengthened. Now, this is one of the powerful things about spiritual disciplines and worshiping in an intentionally liturgical community. And by that, I mean, you know, we say prayers together. We, we have these rituals that we practice together that mark, that help us to participate in the story that God is telling and help us to remember that story. That's what I mean by intentionally liturgical. It's by doing those things that we are shaped. It's not merely us saying, okay, I want to be a good Christian, and we have that thought, and we try and figure out what that should think, we think about what that should look like, and we then try to do that. We have spiritual disciplines, and we submit ourselves to them. We submit ourselves to this liturgical life, and it's by submitting to those practices and those actions of praying and reading Scripture and being honest with one another, confessing sins, It's by submitting ourselves to those practices that we're being shaped as the people of God. And so I want to say if you're struggling with doubt, there's room in faith for doubt. But the way your doubt will be addressed is not going to be, you know, books at the library. It's not going to be outside community with God's people. It's not going to be outside of, of God. You've got to run to Him. Act on your faith. And your faith will be strengthened. The fourth element that we need to take note of in these prayers for, for help is this confidence and confession in, of, of our faith. And that's what we just kind of walked at. Right? As David practiced, acted out his faith in his prayers, his faith is strengthened. And he can be, he can be confident in who God is and who he knows God has revealed him. So as you and I bring our neediness and honesty before the Lord, He will meet us there and He will refresh our faith. He will refresh our souls. As I said earlier, it's because uh, that we pray because God has first awakened and stirred faith inside of us. So our very praying for help is an expression of hope. It's an expression of confidence in God. So what looked like doubt at the beginning in verses 1 and 2 actually turns into an expression of faith. It's the action, it's an action that that reinforces his faith, that builds it up. David confesses his trust to God in his steadfast love. The idea of the enemies rejoicing over him in verse 4 has been reversed, right? He rejoices now in the salvation that he knows he can find in God. So the fourth element is this expression of trust, this confidence in God. The fifth and final element in these prayers is a, the promise of praise or sacrifice. We saw this in Jonah. Jonah got finished and he said, Man, I'm going to keep my vows. <laughs> he had this crazy experience of coming out of a fish. <laughs> um, not all of us are going to experience that. <laughs> but we'll have the opportunity as we meet God face to face and praying for help. We'll come away. Our faith will be stirred and strengthened. And we'll, we'll come away saying, I've got to commit myself to this. Aubrey pointed out last week as praise was the goal of the Psalms, the great need for the human soul. But before we just jump to praise, we walk through a lot of 
muck and mire. We walk through a lot of difficulties and strife. It's the messy of real, of real life, the messiness of real life. But as we grow in our ability to pray for help, we will meet God. We will meet God. And our circumstances, they may never get easier. Who knows how long David was praying? Many people in the Israelite community died in Egypt as slaves, though they were praying for their lifetime. Your, main life, your life may be wrought with difficulty after difficulty, but I guarantee you that as you meet with the Lord, as you experience His presence, praise can arise in the midst of those conflicts. One of the things that this psalm teaches us is that complaint and praise are not antithetical. That we can take this simultaneity of, of complaint and praise and as an expression of real life, you know, as, as the life of real faith. We're going to experience this. Deja read from uh, Philippians. And Paul's in prison. He's experiencing turmoil, you know, in the midst of that. And people are praying for him. And he's like, hey, I, I feel like I'm going to be delivered. Later on, he says one of those wild things I think the Bible says. <laughs> Verse 28, he says, It has been granted to you to not only believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. We should expect this. Suffering is a part of our human experience. But more than just a human experience, it's part of the Christian experience. Psalm 21, Philippians 1.28 informs us this, that this, it's been granted to us to suffer for Christ's sake. Jesus never promises that the Christian life is going to be carefree. He does, however, promise that it will be cruciform. We're supposed to look like Him. There's a pastor, theologian guy named John Calvin. Some of you may have heard of him. He suggested that the Psalms, by holding together this complaint and praise, teach and train us to bear the cross. As David seeks refuge in God, his faith is strengthened and he commits himself to praise. And as we turn to God, praying for help, this is the direction that we must go, committing ourselves to praise. And let's say it's a, this is a discipline. This is something that we have to choose. We're not going to feel like praying at times, especially if you feel like God has turned his back on you, especially if you feel like God is absent, somehow hiding his face. But the Psalms teach us we can bring an honest complaint directly to God. He's the one who can be our help. If we run away from God, our faith will shrivel up. But if we run to God, our faith will be strengthened because we're acting on our faith. So let's get practical then with Psalm 13. These five elements, they're characteristic. Do I need to say the five elements again? Are those taking notes? Do you have the five elements? You good? So these five elements, they're characteristic of these kinds of prayers. As you look through the Psalms, though, you're not going to find every Psalm follows this pattern. You're not going to find that every Psalm actually even has all five of these. Some of them don't. Psalm 88 never shows the last two pieces, right? They never show trust and confidence in God. It never shows this commitment to praise. But Psalm praying... (laughs) it takes us up in the things of real life and it brings us to God and we meet Him there 
and it's important for us to learn how to pray psalms. But psalm praying won't happen by accident. You've got to commit yourself to it. You've got to be disciplined. For prayer is going to arise out of a disciplined life. You have to intentionally set time aside for it. So we've been challenging you these last few weeks to set at least 10 minutes aside to spend time in the Psalms and to practice praying these kinds of prayers. So uh, throughout this week, I challenge you to set aside at least 10 minutes a day and to pray for help. I want to name out a few Psalms. I want you to write them down. Psalm 3, Psalm 13, Psalm 22, Psalm 51, Psalm 88, or sorry, 69, 88, 109, and 130. These are different psalms of help, prayers for help. Spend time in them. Now, not everybody feels the weight of the world crashing down on them. Not everybody feels like they're in a place where they have to cry out for help like this. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you're weird. It doesn't mean you're unattuned things. <laughs> uh, but you still need to practice this type of praying because there are people all around you who are being crushed by the weight of their circumstances. And they need help. And this is your opportunity to stand in as a priest on their behalf and offer them up to the Lord to pray for them. Eugene Peterson in his book, Answering God, he encourages us to pray through the Psalms as we're reading them. And so uh, what he recommends is, I pointed out those bigger spaces between the different verses. As you're reading your Psalm, when it comes to a larger space, take note of that and stop. Use that block to help you pray. So if we're praying through Psalm, 1, Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, it's a block about lament. Hey, we allow that lament to shape the direction of our praying. When we get to verses 3 and 4, it's the petition and the description. We allow that block to shape the way we start our prayers. When we get to the praise part, the promise part, there are verses 5 and 6. We allow that. We ask the Lord to strengthen our faith in those times and to stir in us this commitment to pray or whoever it is who is suffering. We, we pray in those ways. We allow these blocks to shape and direct the way we pray. So MG and I, MG, that's what I wrote down, Mary Grace and I, uh, we know of a couple who uh, for years had been suffering oppression, harassment from, uh, from the IRS. They had... Uh, they had lost almost all their savings in uh, the stock market, but not before gaining some significant profits, um, which thus the IRS was involved. Uh, but everything was gone, pretty much. Um, and the IRS is, was demanding, like, I don't know, something like $3,000 a month or whatever from this couple. And they, it was something that was impossible for them to pay. The wife's a school teacher, uh, the husband is disabled, he's on a fixed income. So, like, I mean, there's just no way that they could survive paying that much. And for years, you know, they, they pleaded with the IRS. They, you know, had lawyers involved and tried to have all these different meetings. And, and year after year after year, you know, they were just being rejected and demanding, demanded to pay $3,000 a month, which is an impossible thing for them. And so we had the opportunity to, to pray for them and pray with them. And we did this. We lamented. Like, God, this is not just. This is not right. When are you going to do something? They can't. <laughs> this is impossible. We need you. And we brought our petition to the Lord, right? We said, Lord, intervene in this. Soften the hearts of the people they're talking to at the IRS and let them 
show favor to this couple. Um, we prayed. And, and in the midst of that praying, I mean, this took years, right? And so along the way, there's so much anxiety, all these ups and downs. They would think that the IRS was going to be softened towards them and, and just to be slapped in the face. And, and so it's a very roller coaster ride of emotions. But during all that anxiety and that trouble, uh, we've, we were able to witness the Lord minister to that couple in some very powerful ways to bring healing, to bring fresh faith and just excitement, incredible trust. Uh, it was yeah, an extremely difficult time, but we lamented together. We argued our case before the Lord, and we praised God in the midst of it. Now, this type of praying isn't like sending carrier pigeons into the air, right? With just the hope that it's going to arrive there with a message attached to it. That's not what this kind of praying does. This is our priestly service. It's our spiritual warfare. Eugene Peterson, again, in his book, Answering God, he talks about psalm praying in terms of spiritual battle. And he says... That psalm prayer, it enters into the way things are, but finds that the way things are is pretty bad. Evil is encountered. Wickedness is is confronted. This prayer then quickens the pulse. It shoots adrenaline into the bloodstream. And the people who practice this prayer, praying, they get excited. They yell and they gesture. So it's not just a, how long, O Lord, how long? I mean, it's, how long? How long? You're desperate. Right? You, you allow that urgency to shape the way you pray. You yell, you gesture. They engaged, they are engaged, or soon to be engaged, in an act of war. Prayer is combat. Prayer brings us before God, and there before God we find ourselves grappling with the world rulers of this present darkness against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. He quotes Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 there. So don't think this is just a cute way of praying, right? Prayer not only involves the nice positive things of verses 5 and 6 that we see in Psalm 13. Prayer involves the brutal honesty of verses 1 and 2. And the urgency, the pleading, the petitioning, the begging of verses 3 and 4. It involves all that. And we pray because we believe that God will respond differently than if we don't. We pray as an act of faith. We pray because God's word invites us, it commands us to pray. It's a way of our delighting in Him, we know that, so we delight in His word. We obey that commandment. And we also pray because we find our refuge in Him. He is our defense, and we depend on Him. So I hope you've seen that behind the psalmist or inside the psalmist, there's this deep commitment to those twin pillars of the psalms that we saw in Psalm 1 and 2. Delighting in God's word, depending on God as refuge. Those things drive the psalmist and should drive us to pray to God with honesty, pray to Him. (laughs) We can expound, describe our troubles. We petition for help. We make our case. We lay it before the Lord. And as we do that, we experience God in profound ways. We will. I guarantee you, your faith will be challenged. It will be shaken. But it will be strengthened. The foes won't rejoice over you. 
your, jo- your rejoicing will be in the God of salvation. Let's pray.